Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This interview is the first of a series of two with Dr. Mira Dakin Sadgopal, an obstetrician and gynecologist living and working in rural India. She is an organizer of the Jiwa Project, which studies an indigenous midwifery practice that uses the placenta to revive newborns who are unable to breathe for themselves. Dr. Dakin Sadgopal is the managing trustee of Tathapai, a small center for women and health resource development in India, where she has lived for over three decades. In the 1980s, Dr. Dakin Sadgopal provided medical relief to victims of the Union Carbide Gas Leak in Bhopal. She later collaborated with women members of the Landless Labors Union to run an essential medicines facility, a local village medical cooperative. She is the author of In Our Hands and the editor of two other books, Her Healing Heritage and My Body is Mine. In 2007, Dr. Dakin Sadgopal was the recipient of the Chingari Award for Women Against Corporate Crimes, which is given annually to a woman activist who has taken up the cause of community fighting corporate criminal activity in India. Dr. Dakin Sadgopal grew up in California and is now a citizen of India. This the first of two interviews with her was recorded in the studios of Radio Curious on September 6th, 2010. In these interviews, we discuss the current and traditional midwifery practices in India's rural countryside and began when I asked her about the background of the Jiwa Project. This is a project which um, a number of us uh, initiated in 2007. A number of us who have been involved with uh, traditional midwives in various parts of India. And uh, the background of scenario of the project is uh, a government uh, health policy which aims towards getting all women into hospitals to deliver their babies. We hope that this policy, and we, we know that this policy can be modified. It's now within the context of the National Rural Health Mission of India, which is called the flagship um, policy and program of, of the government. How would you characterize the goal of the government's policy? The goal links with the need to meet Millennium Development Goals, um, two of which are to reduce the maternal and infant mortality by three-fourths and two-thirds by 2015. Well, you've been involved for many years as a doctor, a medical doctor in India, uh, working primarily with women's health. Do you feel that project will meet the goal of uh, health care for women in the maternal context, the delivery context? Well, um the objective of getting all women uh, giving birth into hospitals to deliver their babies uh, is uh, problematic 
largely it's problematic because uh, there aren't enough hospitals, there isn't enough space, and uh, pushing to expand the space means extreme crowding and uh, hazards like um, infection and the problems of moving mothers in, uh, at, at a very critical time. Uh, but the fact is that there is a, an ancient system of midwifery uh, in even the most remote areas and as well as in the, the uh, traditional communities which have moved to cities. And uh, there is also a widespread primary health care system throughout the country in India, although it doesn't, uh, it's not very developed in some of the states. So we feel that there can be, um, there should be a linkage between the two. The ancient tradition of midwifery begins with girls, seven, eight, nine, following their mothers, their grandmothers, their aunts, when they, these older women are midwives. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, actually, the traditional midwifery system is not uh, homogeneous, it's quite diverse, and uh, it takes different forms in, in uh, different communities throughout the country, whether they're tribal or they're typically lower caste, what we nowadays call Dalit, the, the oppressed. Otherwise, they were known as untouchable castes. Uh, and within them, there are a number of subcastes. But typically within them, the little girls learn about childbirth and babies and having babies uh, from very earliest childhood by accompanying their mothers or their, uh, their aunts to the household where the birth is taking place. Sometimes uh, as a form of childcare, they, just, they play with the other children around uh, and uh, sooner or later they begin to uh, sit with the mother or aunt and and watch what's happening and then they play a lot of games with their girlfriends uh, about how to uh, the whole drama of having uh, having a baby taking care of the baby taking care of the mother and then as they get older they become practitioners yes um, many of them yeah typically they have uh, they get they have been getting married at the age of around 12 or so, 13, 14, and going to their uh, uh, marital homes. And there, after having one or two children, they begin to practice under the guidance of their mothers-in-law. Mira Sangopal, what is the age of that a woman has her first child? The age of marriage and the age of having the first child is increasing nowadays, but it typically has been... Uh, uh, that a girl would be married around the age of 12 or 13 and then have her first baby around the age of 14 or 15 or 16. As I understand it, and, and I confess my understanding is, is quite limited, that in the physical development of a woman, it's uh, not as healthy for her to have a child at that age as it is, let's say, 8 to 10 years later. In general, we find that... Uh, Childbirth in young women in late, the late teens is uh, not unhealthy. They do very well. And there are uh, relatively few complicated births. Now, we're doing a pilot project in four parts of India, four remote parts of India, and uh, 
it's basically a qualitative uh, research project to know all about the uh, midwifery practices and procedures. But it's also um, quantitative to the extent that we've selected small uh, numerated communities so that we can assess prevalences and uh, uh, prevalences of practices and of their outcomes and the outcome of the birth process itself so that we'll have a better idea of the uh, the actual situation as far as health goes of mothers birthing mothers and new newborns at this stage of the jiva pilot project what have you learned well the jiva project pilot project was uh, done in uh, January and February of 2009. We took quite a long time over that data that we collected. Uh, the data was from uh, interviews with 13 experienced uh, traditional midwives whom were generically they're called dais in India. The goal of uh, the pilot project was to lead into the main project which we're about to start in October uh, uh, which is to uh, document in depth over uh, two years of research field work um, all the procedures and practices which um, the dais, uh, which belong to the dais in in their practice of uh, childbirth care, uh, and their their whole worldview uh, about uh, birthing, uh, their relationships with their communities and their relationships with uh, existing health, other health practitioners, other healers and health care providers, such as they might be in, in those particular four remote areas. So in the pilot project, we were working in the state of Jharkhand, uh, in Bokaro district, in uh, two uh, development blocks, and uh, each one of the 13 midwives lived in a different village. What have you found? Uh, at this stage of your research? Um, well, um, f first of all, we found that there are a whole uh, array of very positive, uh, apparently very positive practices and procedures uh, which uh, the dais adopt when they're caring for um, birthing women and newborns. Uh, among these are... Um, Various uses of oil massage and uh, and heat fermentation, uh, application of heat, and um, they they have a, a number of strengths. Um, one of the, uh, of course, uh, as we mentioned, the learning process, the extended learning process, and then the extended ad apprenticeship before they finally uh, practice. Uh, uh, as senior dais uh, gives them uh, a, a great um, appreciation of the whole spectrum of normal birth particularly and the various kinds of um, variations in the in normal that can happen that might lead, lead into complications so that uh, many of them are very adept in actually uh, turning complications or po potential complications into normal situations. So this is the learning that we spoke of earlier with the uh, girls seven, eight, nine, yes. learning this, uh, uh, learning to be a die. Yes, yes. 
Yes, seven, eight, nine, and then uh, after they get married, then when they begin to work with their mothers-in-law, and uh, uh, then later on when the elder Dai uh, turn, uh, decides to turn over her practice to her daughter-in-law. And that's the usual pattern. Are most of the women who are Dai's mothers as well? Yes, almost all of them. I mean, all of the Dai's whom we have interviewed have been mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Dr. Mira Dakin Sagopal, an American woman who moved to India in the late 1960s and became a gynecologist and obstetrician. So let's continue now with some music that was loaned to me by Mira Dakin Sagopal. Dakin Satgopal, tell us more about the experience of these young children who study to become midwives beginning at age seven. Other uh, strengths uh, beyond their their ex, their uh, prolonged learning process is the uh, their great and deep commitment to uh, the health and the well-being and survival of uh, women, birthing women and newborn babies. The way that they give continuous support through childbirth and into the postpartum period for usually for about six six days or so continuously um, that's something very special about their tradition. Can you explain that the elements of the continuous support in the postpartum period for the week or so that you mentioned yeah well uh the support during uh, during pregnancy, although it's it's not a universal pattern, but usually the dyes uh, are called when the the woman uh, gets stronger contractions, and she goes, and she uh, she 
she usually sometimes she puts oil on her hands she puts her hands onto the belly of the woman and she feels and she talks with her and she uh, feels through her hands the position of the baby the strength of the contractions uh whether the baby is positioned straight or uh, how far it's descended. Uh, sometimes they do a, a, a diagnostic test, which is very common, not only in our pilot region, but in many other parts of India. They, they uh, drop a few drops of oil over the navel of the pregnant woman who is uh, standing up and the dai is, uh, is uh, usually squatting or sitting in front of her. And if the oil drops downward straight, she uh, detects that the baby's head has gone into the pelvis and is ready and will be born fairly soon. But if the drops of oil go to the side, then it means that the head is still above the pelvic rim and that the, uh, that the birth will take a little longer time. When you say drops down straight or goes to the side, is that within um, the navel cavity no, it or, flows or down, down, down the belly? No, no, it flows down down the, the belly. belly to either to the side or uh, straight down in the front. The different um, physiology of each woman about to give birth, has that been determined to be an accurate indicator of where the head is in relationship to the pelvis? Uh, actually, uh, this is a question which, um, which we'll be looking at in much greater depth when we're going beyond the, the, just the interviews with the dyes. We'll be actually observing them doing this more. We've observed a demonstration on a kind of a a, a woman who had a protruding belly, but she wasn't a pregnant woman. Um, but uh, uh, all of these procedures will be um, will be observing in depth by actually going to the along with the dye as often as we can in each of these areas over the next two years. And so, continuing with the dye and the pregnant woman. Hmm. Yes. So she she may do that uh, that test of dropping oil over the navel and seeing the way it flows to know whether the head is above the pelvic rim or whether it's gone into the pelvis. Uh, usually she doesn't uh, do an internal examination at that point. She detects uh, the situation from the outside and from the strength of the contractions. And uh, if the contractions are not strong, she may simply uh, ask the woman either to rest or she might encourage to, her to walk around a lot. Uh, and uh, that stimulates the contractions. Uh, and then uh, after the contractions uh, increase, uh, she may do an internal examination and we we have to uh, um, learn much more about this from them, but as they describe, they say that you know if there's if one finger goes in, then uh, you know she's not ready. If two fingers go in, she's not ready, but she she's progressing. If three fingers go in, then she's you know heading towards uh, being ready to give birth. And when four fingers turn around inside, then she's, uh, she'll be able to 
and she'll be delivering soon. Now, is this, when you say in, is this inside the vaginal canal or inside the cervix? Yeah, we think it's within the cervix, but sometimes it seems the vaginal canal. So these are things that we'll have to actually be learning with them, like as apprentices to them uh, in, the, in the research project. And you bring with you um, medical training in a more uh, Western, if you will, sense in gynecology and obstetrics. Yes. So continue. Tell us the story of of, um, of the dye working with the woman in uh, beginning stages of labor. Okay. Now, sometimes the uh, the contractions are not uh, don't pick up as they should, or they're sluggish, or there's a um, labor is prolonged somewhat. And then the dye, uh, aside from making the woman move around, she may do some other things. Uh, some are physical and some are kind of ritual, which be, uh, reminds me that one of the things we really got to appreciate in the pilot study was uh, the ritual role of the dye uh, throughout the birthing process and afterwards in the life of that woman and the child even afterwards. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, uh, one of the things is uh, that when uh, a woman is to give birth, she's in a state of well, which uh, Ayurveda, the, in, the uh, old uh, indigenous Indian system of medicine refers to as uh, a vata uh, state, uh, V-A-A-T-A, vata a state of movement, of opening, and uh, later on of closing. Uh, and uh, to encourage that whole process, everything that is closed or tied in a knot, uh, uh, locks are opened, uh, hair is opened, uh, clothes are opened, cupboards are opened, and uh, rings are taken off fingers and toes, necklaces are taken off, so that the woman's body may mirror those, that state of opening. Uh, and uh, it, it, uh, it goes along with the woman um, coming into the, the state of opening up and giving birth to the baby. Uh, and the dye plays a very, very strong uh, role in that. All the whole, the whole family, the whole community, sometimes participates in those kinds of rituals. So, in the community, people nearby and, and friends of the of the mother about to give birth would open the doors, open the cupboards, take off their rings, yes, open their clothing, yes, yes, untie. Everyone their hair. will do that. Men and women alike. It's more among the women. It's very much. Uh, yeah, among the women, but the men will be con may be conscious of it and uh, certainly will help in that process. So then, too, going back to the uh, girls of seven, eight, and nine, who are perhaps even unknowing in training, they too participate. Oh yes, yes, every, everyone would participate. And another um, tradition which we found in many other places, and we found in this pilot uh, area also is a certain herb which they refer to as litliti or chitchiti. Uh, it has a little uh, sprigs of uh, seeds with a little hook on it. And uh, uh, 
that uh, that herb is broken and uh, either put in the hair of the woman or or tied to her waist, and uh, that is supposed to uh, um, that's meant to increase the contractions, and we nobody knows how it happens or why it happens, but it's very, a very widespread practice even in other parts of India, from the north to the south. Are you aware of this herb having other uses? Uh, it's um, most of its other uses are ritual uses uh, during different uh, prayers, worship ceremonies. Uh, it's also the leaves are also consumed at a certain time of year when the leaves are tender as a vegetable. But beyond that, we don't know. It has it it has uses in Ayurvedic medicine. It's a well known Ayurvedic medicine. Can you tell us the name of the herb that you're describing? I don't know the the botanical name. I know the name in Sanskrit is Apamarga. And are there additional ritual practices? Yes. Uh, w- one thing about that that herb is that uh, it uh, tends to it causes contractions, and after the baby is born, uh, the dais all caution that the uh, it should be removed from the hair or removed from the waist where it's tied, otherwise it might uh, be too strong. It might even cause the whole uterus to come out after the baby. So the herb is is uh, on the exterior. It's it's not taken. No, uh, it's not taken. It's just put in the hair or put in the in the waist. Well, Dr. Mira Dakin Sangopal, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, is there a, a book that you could recommend? Uh, yes, it's a book that I've just finished. It's called Anila's Journey, and it's by Mary Finn. Uh, it's a recent book. Uh, it's Walker Books. The author is an Irish woman, uh, and uh, she's uh, written about the life of a woman uh, named Anila Tandy. I don't know to what extent it's fictionalized, but she lived around in the 1700s in uh, eastern India, around Calcutta, and she was an illustrator of birds, and uh, quite a, a wonderful, strong, and sensitive personality. And uh, I think the writer has done a wonderful job in capturing this life. Dr. Mira Dakin Sangopal, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. You're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) You have just heard the first interview of a two-part series with Dr. Mira Dakin Sangopal, a native of California and now a citizen of India. She is a practicing obstetrician and gynecologist studying traditional and current midwifery practices in India. The book Dr. Dakin Sagotpal recommends is Anila's Journey by Mary Finn. There are over 380 Radio Curious archive editions on our website at radiocurious.org, where all programs are free to download, copy, share, or rebroadcast as you wish. We'd like you to use the whole program and ask that you give credit to Radio Curious. You may also subscribe to our podcast and receive new programs as they are produced. Click the podcast link at radiocurious.org. 
Let us know if you need a CD. We can make one for you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail may be sent to Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is our associate producer. You've been listening to Radio Curious. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for joining us.